This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are in the thick of Season 5. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I teach at Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies and I write a monthly column for St. Anthony Messenger Magazine. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. He's also a columnist for the National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. Welcome. Thank you, David. As always, also great to see you. (laughs) We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio or an extended discussion or interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. That's Francis and the letters F and X with the word pod, and you can become a monthly supporter of the show. Please also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's again, Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffect, that's effect spelled the English way, FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. Dan, how have you been? David, splendid. <laughs> splendid. Much like that wonderful NPR program about cooking and Thanksgiving, The Splendid Table. So, no, I, I, things are good. As our listeners are hearing our voices at this very moment, I'm in the Eternal City, not the Internal City. <laughs> I don't know what that is. I'm in Rome. I'm going to Rome next week for an academic conference for a gathering of scholars who study uh, Christian spirituality and speaking there. I'm looking forward to that. Also, that same week, my new book is being released by Orbis Books. Yeah. And so that's something for people to keep an eye out. It's called Catholicity and Emerging Personhood, a Contemporary Theological Anthropology. So if you want to learn more about the Christian Catholic theological view of the human person and some constructive approaches to developing that for the 21st century, check it out. Well, it sounds like we're also going to be talking about it on my other show, Things Not Seen. That's the plan. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I love talking Well, I love talking to you like this, but I also love digging deep into your work because it always, I learn stuff and it's fascinating to me. Igualmente. <laughs> David, how are you? You've got, you are on the move, as they say. Yes. So since we're talking about when people are hearing this, when you're hearing this, Dan is in Rome and I'm still unpacking boxes. So we just moved. Like, as we're taping this, literally, we got done moving yesterday. And by the time that you hear this in a few days, uh, we will still be in the midst of unpacking things in our new house here in Hyde Park. And it's lovely, and we love it, and it's great, but I'm in a lot of pain just because it's four flights up, there is no elevator, and so we had a, a lot of box hauling over the last few days, and all my legs are in great shape. How's your back? That's always the danger, right? Yeah, my back is okay. My shoulder, however, my left shoulder, I've kind of thrown out, so I need to to get like some heat on that or something because it needs some TLC. Oh man! Uh, but you know, I'm I'm getting old, and the parts wear out. So <laughs> I hear that, brother. I hear that. Um, I'm not quite as uh, senior in age as you are, but. I'm not that far behind. <laughs> I feel it sometimes. And so you're also in the thick of the semester. How's teaching going? 
Teaching's great. Teaching three courses this fall and really enjoying them. Two of them are courses I've taught several times uh, previously, and that's always a lot of fun. Um, I'm also teaching a new course called Spirituality and Justice. It's new to me, I should say. It's a core course, one of the options for MDiv students, Master of Divinity students, to take from among three options. And my colleague and friend of the podcast, Dr. C. Vanessa White, also teaches that course. So as it seems right now, we kind of alternate year to year teaching teaching a section of that. And it's it's been really great. Um, we're only two weeks into the semester, so it's still a bit early. But, you know, I love teaching. I love especially teaching students who are preparing for ministry or for teaching. You know, these are all graduate students. So, you know, the the engagement is, is you know, generally top-notch and the interest is there and I really I enjoy it. How about you? You're, you're teaching full-time these days doing a similar sort of thing. I am. I'm teaching four courses at Institute for Pastoral Studies. One of them is online. All of them I have taught before, but it's a wide mix. So I'm teaching a class in Bible, an introduction to the Old Testament. I think it's called Literature of Ancient Israel. So it's got that kind of title instead of Introduction to the Old Testament. And That's a way to kind of trick people into taking it, right? <laughs> exactly. They're like, ooh, literature <laughs> of ancient Israel. Ooh, yeah. I wonder if there's going to be some poetry. Yeah, there is. It's called the Psalms. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the other piece, uh, I'm teaching a, a couple of sections of Intro to Spirituality or I guess it's the foundations of the Christian spiritual tradition. And then I'm teaching leadership in social justice organizations. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, it gets me access. The nice thing about IPS is that they have an overlap of several different types of disciplines. So social work and social justice, in addition to preparation for ministry. And that allows me to interact with students with a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different life experiences. And that's always fun to have in the classroom because it generates some really good discussions. But the classes go until 930 at night. And so I am, I'm tired most of the days these days because I get home late and I get up early. Well, and that's tough too, because you're teaching on the North End and you live on the South Side. Yes. So that's, the commute itself is is killer. I mean, yeah. I guess the, the silver lining of a class ending at 930 is there's less traffic, um, <laughs> you know, trying to look on the bright side. But. Yeah. but everything that is going on in our lives, as busy as we are, we're happy to be connecting over important issues that face our lives and the church today. And so in this episode of The Francis Effect, we'll be talking about three topics. We'll be looking at the third democratic debate, which happened a couple weeks ago as you're hearing this. We'll be looking at the synods that are coming up in the Catholic Church. And we'll also be talking about a comment that Pope Francis made on a plane back from Madagascar, talking about the possibility of schism in the Catholic Church. So we'll be back in a moment to pick those up. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Thanks for being with us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with my friend David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss current events, politics, culture from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. So the third debate happened. We're still nearly a year away from the actual election, and there has not yet been one actual primary or caucus. But we have had the third debate, and already the very wide field of Democratic candidates has narrowed. The blog 538 did some analysis on the responses to the various candidates, and the results were anodyne. They said, quote, In terms of raw debate grades, Warren, Buttigieg, and O'Rourke did best. Booker, Sanders, Biden, and Harris did fine, unquote. And that tells us kind of what we well, already knew. There are candidates who are running as center or center-left. That would be Biden, but also Booker and perhaps Harris. And there are candidates who are running as some form of left insurgent, and that would be Sanders and Warren, but also to some extent O'Rourke. Although O'Rourke seems in many ways to be moving more into his own space and off the left-right axis, it's kind of hard to follow these days. There are some, of course, who would argue that as Catholics, we should not be paying attention to Democrats at all, and that spending time discussing them is an exercise of apostasy. We're talking to you, internet trolls. We take a very different view here at the Francis Effect, in part because the ideas being discussed on the stage this time around are issues that should be talked about in a Catholic context. Issues like gun control, immigration, and health care are all issues that are part of our social teaching and our faith. But David, you are an armchair and a lectern <laughs> political analyst. You are pundit, pontiff pundit. 
What do you think? Oh, uh, after that, I it's hard to even know what I think. We're in season five, folks. <laughs> I've taken off my tie. I'm being a little bit more silly from now on. <laughs> so. Well, I, I will say, so first of all, what you said is exactly true. It's difficult to navigate these waters sometimes because the rhetoric is such that if you are a person of the Catholic faith, it's difficult to find a political home. The Republicans have spent 30 years trying to sort of create an easy path between Catholicism and Republicanism. And when I was younger, I was a Republican. And now that I'm older, I tend to caucus with the Democrats, but I do not consider myself to be a member of the Democratic Party. I'm an independent. And I do that partly because of candidates like Warren and Sanders. I tend to skew even more left of what we usually get in the political landscape. And so I like to keep options open, but also I like to be strategic, especially in years like this. So it's been interesting to watch how the field has narrowed and how it has clarified some of the fault lines and the pressure points within the Democratic Party itself. We have Biden, who represents a centrist kind of old school way of doing politics, of which Obama was a part. I mean, Obama sort of maybe looked like a radical candidate from the outside, but was not a radical once he got into office. And Biden is promising more of the same. Well, I would say even the 2007-2008 primary debates, he, he was pretty centrist. I mean, it's hard for us to think about what that world was like. I mean, it was quite literally more than a decade ago. But it was a time coming out of the Iraq and Afghanistan war, a, a two-term George W. Bush administration. This was the era, of course, where there were these referenda that were being posed to states about defining marriage as between one man and one woman and everything. Like, this is, so much has happened since then. And uh, yeah, the, the one kind of thing I think that distinguished then-candidate Obama, Senator Obama, was that he was basically a centrist who did not vote for or support the Iraq war. But in many ways, I, you're exactly right. He was and remains, even in office, a pretty run-of-the-mill, centrist sort of Democrat, yeah. which, which today still looks really progressive compared to the craziness unfolding in our current government. But we have to ask the question, has the landscape, and I'm talking literally the landscape, which includes the climate, has it changed to the, to the point where what was a strategy for democratic electoral politics for the last maybe two and a half decades has really eroded? And that is, is there still time, Dan, for centrism? Is there still time for candidates? Oh, who, that's a great question. Yeah. You know, my, my sense is no. My, my sense is no. And, and I think you see that with the energy, particularly with, with younger folks, you know, the, the millennials and, and Gen Z as they're aging into voting age, you know, 18, 19, that sort of thing, entering college and the workforce. You know, I, I don't think there's, there's time for centrism anymore. And part of it is because... I, in, I'm hesitating because I don't know how to word this that isn't going to annoy a lot of people in every direction. But I think, you know, Secretary Hillary Clinton is a great example of somebody who is a centrist par excellence. And that was, you know, there are a lot of factors that go into what happened in 2016. But part of it was, you know, people talk about this electability and likability and energy and charism and charisma and this kind of stuff. I, I think that's missing the point. I think one of the problems that a lot of people had that explains why people, particularly young people, were not, quote unquote, excited by Hillary Clinton was that it was more of the same. And if you took the D after her name away and replaced it with an R, there, there were plenty of Republicans that would fit a lot of the same sort of principles and policies and views that, that she espoused. Again, we're talking about night and day when you put her up against somebody like President Trump. Nevertheless, I think... People are looking for direction and not more status quo. And the way I personally see among the Democratic candidates, those who are espousing sort of a centrist view, in particular somebody like Vice President Biden, I see somebody who is a status quo candidate. And, and the desire that he the, – the case he's making is let's go back to what things were like in 2008. And, and I think to your point, to answer your question in this long-winded way, has the landscape changed? Absolutely. Well, and one of the things about that – I mean, there's a lot there that you just said that I think we can dig into. One of the things that kind of stood out to me is the notion of kind of how Democratic candidates have been presented as kind of this. Right now, a lot of the centrist Democrats are running as we're the safer, saner alternative to Donald Trump. But I think what you're getting at is that younger voters particularly and old weird voters like maybe me and maybe you, we're looking for, I guess, more intersectionality in the issues that candidates are talking about. So Instead of talking about 
an immigration policy and instead of talking about an economic policy and instead of talking about a defense policy, we begin to ask questions that draw those three together and say, you know, Obama was pretty good on health care, got us some stuff that we didn't have before, but was deporting more people than we had ever deported before and still was drone striking exactly. innocent people. Yeah. And I think that people are much more aware of the fact that there's not you can't be a la carte about these things. You, right. you have to be more global, and I'm using that in all manners of the word, you have to be more global in your approach to the issues because they interconnect, because the the lives of people, we're aware now in a way that we have not been aware before because of technology and because of, of social media, of the impact that our casual approach to policymaking as citizens has on the lives of innocent people around the world. And we need to be more attentive to that as citizens because as Americans, it's our responsibility, at least on paper, we're the ones in control of this process. We need to be making some steps so that as Catholics in particular, what we believe about our faith and what we believe about our social teaching is actually reflected in political policy, not just in a single issue like abortion, but across the board. And that's where I come down. Yeah, that's right. I think the intersectionality is really important. That might come across to folks who are listening who are not kind of academics like we are as, as a bit of a, a jargony word. So, you know, the, the Catholic tradition provides us with other ways to think about exactly what you're describing. We can talk about it as a consistent ethic of life when we look at the way that all these issues return to and flow from the principle of the common good when it comes to politics and policy. Oftentimes, there's this other phrase that's used, uh, the seamless garment approach, that we're not kind of ripping off a sleeve or this part of, of the cloth, but, but it's all of one woven piece. So issues of, of life are manifold and not singular. I think since we're talking, let's, let's go back and talk about more specifically the, the Democratic candidates and, and who's sort of literally and figuratively on the stage right now. And again, to address what we talked about in the topper, there are going to be some people that are like, well, Catholics can't vote for Democrats at all. That is, first of all, patently untrue. So let's let's make that very clear. The Catholic Church is not identified with a singular political party or any political parties. Rather, we are people who are tasked, and as the U.S. bishops remind us every four years when they release an updated version of their document, Faithful Citizenship, it's a, a Catholic guide to voting, and what's present there is that just because somebody holds one view or a view on a, on a couple issues does not inherently disqualify somebody from being a candidate that a Catholic can vote for. However, one with a well-informed conscience could feel on a personal level that they can't support a certain representative or elected official. That's an individual thing. But if you hear people, priests, bishops, your neighbor, you know, talking heads on EWTN telling you that you can't vote for a Democrat or you can't vote for a Republican or you can't vote for this particular person, that is not official Catholic teaching, period. So let's just add that disclaimer. So with that in mind, right now, we know the Republican candidate for the 2020 presidential election will be the incumbent, President Donald Trump. So we're talking about those who will be the you know, the opposition, as it were, who is the other candidate? And we've got 10 sort of front runners, as it were, or people who have at least met a threshold that was established to be considered in the game, as it were. My question to you, David, is at this moment, right, late September, which is still, as, as we talked about very, very early, you know, the first uh, caucus in Iowa isn't until after the new year, well into it, actually. Who I'm not asking you for an endorsement or, or who you support, but who is drawing your attention? Who's, who are you liking at this moment who's, who's of this group? Let me answer a question that you didn't ask, and that is, who do I think actually You're has— such a good politician. <laughs> who, who has the momentum at this moment? And the, the momentum is with Biden. That does not give me pleasure, but that is, that's a political fact on the ground. And he's trading on the Obama legacy. He's trading on his— name recognition, but he's also trading on the fact that he's a 40-year-plus career politician. He knows how to do elections, and he knows basically how to get the votes. It's, it's funny, though. The, the, his ascendancy to the second highest office in the land was on the proverbial coattails of somebody who was a, a brand-new politician. And so his 30-something years, 35, 32, 30 years worth of elected, elected office and political experience didn't seem to help him when he ran for president twice before. Yeah, I mean, you, you're raising exactly now. You're raising exactly the counter narrative against that is that just because he's got name recognition and because he has a career in politics doesn't mean that he can actually deliver on the kind of brass ring that the presidency is. I'll be honest with you, uh, the talk around our house right now has to do with Elizabeth Warren and my wife. 
My wife had a conversation with me the other day about contributing a significant number uh, of dollars out of our budget. <laughs> like my eyes popped. I was like, really? You want to do that much? But she's very much in the, the Warren camp right now. I think that has to do with the fact that of all the people that we've seen, Warren seems to at least have a coherent plan for just about everything. And, 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 and let me break it down to where I get to. At the end of the day, Democrats like to talk a lot about how they won the popular vote or how they have the moral high ground or how when they go low, we go high. But at the end of the day, what really counts, unfortunately, right now is 270 votes in the Electoral College. And so that's what I'm looking for from Warren or anybody. Can you show me a plan where you're going to get that? Yeah, the pragmatic argument that you're making is an important one. And at the end of the day, it really counts. The thing I go back and forth on is... What is the primary criterion that we use to evaluate a candidate? Yes. And, and this is obviously the question. In, in an era like we face today where another four years of the Trump presidency could be absolutely catastrophic for, you know, thousands and millions. And I'm not being hyperbolic here. I mean, literally people's lives and also the, the life of the planet. Yeah, I, we can go in, into that on and on and on. But But the point is, you know, I think there is a lot of fear about the electoral college math and, you know, the tendency of incumbents to have the upper hand in elections like this and so forth. And so your point, your last point's really well put, which is like, all right, well, who can get us over the line? The problem I have with that, and this is so, I feel that pressure. I feel that, that fear, you know, and as I watch the debates, as I hear analysts, as I read about this, I go back and forth myself. The thing is in 2007, which is, you know, to go back to two elections ago, three elections ago, a young first-term Illinois senator was not even a blip on the radar and would, would have been the longest of long shots. So I, I, on the one hand, history tells us that, that quite possibly anything is, up, is, is on the table. Yet, eight years later, the candidate was the, was the shoe-in, who was the most experienced, who had the most plans, who was the best known. And prior to her entrance into that particular uh, election had incredibly high favorable ratings as she left office as secretary of state. And so within two election cycles, we have two extremely different approaches, one that was successful, one and in, in defied the sort of commonsensical view, uh, the pragmatic view, and the other that was everything in line with what we'd expect. And it, it was a, a miserable failure in terms of reaching the 270. Yeah. You know, the Democrats won by 3 million votes, but that doesn't mean anything thanks to the U.S. Constitution. My concern is that are we repeating that, you know, as a nation with Joe Biden as the presumed candidate? And to be fair, you know, in 2007, I think Clinton was again the presumed candidate. So, so, you know, he may not be able to hold on to that, that lead for long. I'll just say that, you know, I'm also very, very interested in, in Elizabeth Warren. I think she brings everything to the table. I think she's incredibly smart and, and has well thought out policies that at this point may be too in the weeds for a lot of people to pay attention to. But, but for those who are wonkish, wonkish, you know, it does kind of respond to this desire that you have a plan, as it were. I'll, I'll tell you right now, and, and I'm not the first to come up with this. I, I, I can't remember who it was, Nick Kristoff or, or David Le Leonhardt or somebody in the New York Times earlier this summer, you know, proposed a, a kind of quote unquote dream ticket from that person's perspective. And it was Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg. And I would say the thought of that as I watch these debates unfold and I think about the possibility of leadership, that's that's a combo that that really seems interesting and attractive to me. I want to take the focus back for a second and and look at what I think is kind of a, a, a basic divide in American electoral politics. And I think it's a divide that you can map as well onto the church. And it's an idea of do we want leadership? Do we want do we want a, a figurehead who has a clerical understanding, and I'm going to use that word technically, a clerical understanding of how to run a parish, how to do these basic things, or do we want a charismatic figurehead who stands up and basically plays to the emotions of people and makes people feel good? I think that I fall in the, into the camp of I want competency, and I think of the presidency as needing basic competency. 
But when I look at the current situation, I see a lot of my fellow citizens who simply want someone that makes them feel a certain way. And I'm not sure how you overcome that divide. And as we bring this to a close, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, well, I think somebody like President Obama, you know, whether people like him or don't like him for whatever reason, he was somebody who demonstrated that rare, perfect storm of both of those points. He is a charismatic, intelligent, you know, bright person who who brings together both of those dimensions. Frankly, I see Elizabeth Warren more like that. The truth is Hillary Clinton was somebody who was incredibly competent, but lacked all the charism, was not a particularly, you know, again, I, it feels bad because part of it is perspectively gendered. And, and people will say, oh, you know, the, the, they'll judge a likability sort of quotient that's arbitrary based on sexism, essentially. And uh, though that's unfair, that's, that's part of the problem we need to overcome as a society. Nevertheless, I, I think that Elizabeth Warren overcomes that. You know, there were these early, again, sexist sort of pundits talking about, you know, oh, Elizabeth Warren, is, is she too shrill? Do people not like her? Is she whatever, whatever? But I think she's somebody who, you know, is, you know, there is only one Barack Obama. However, I think she's somebody who is much more engaging and relatable and charismatic. And you see that, you know, for instance, at the Iowa State Fair, and you see that in these other events, you see that in her willingness to stand, stay after all of her uh, events and take selfies with people and, and to be approachable. I think Pete Buttigieg is, is a bit more of the intellectual type. I, I feel comforted by the idea of somebody as bright as him, as creative as he's been. I know that a lot has been made in, in recently about um, some of the, the police situation in South Bend, and that's very important and, and worth you know, examining in greater detail. But the truth is all of these, by virtue of being politicians, all these politicians, especially those who hold executive office, mayors, governors, and so forth, sitting presidents, are going to have you know, kind of checkered policy and political uh, issues. So I think they can be brought together. I think, honestly, whether we like it or not, and it sounds like you don't like it, you know, it, and I, I'm, I'm generally in the camp with you. I mean, I'm somebody who has voted in every election I can since I turned 18. So Same here. Yeah. And so uh, as responsible kind of citizens of this country and of our locales, you know, we're going to vote no matter what, and we're going to make an informed decision as we see fit by our informed consciences and so forth, and by weighing all the factors. But I think that the, the reality is of the, th you know, 300 million eligible voters or something like this, you know, we, we never break really 50% of the, of the eligible voters in voting even in a presidential election. And the truth is to get people out, they're not inspired to come out on a November Tuesday morning because of policy plans. You need to have as well something that wakes them up and fires them up. I, it's interesting to me who we were drawn to talk about in this discussion as much as who we were not drawn to talk about. And it being early in the season, I'm sure that we will come back and we'll be talking about this again in later episodes. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton. I'm here with my friend Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks we get together to talk about politics and issues of the day through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. In just a few weeks, the Synod of Bishops for the Pan-Amazon region will begin in Rome. Bishops from the region will meet in Rome from October 6th to 27th to discuss pressing issues in the region, such as climate change, threats to the Amazon rainforest, the rise of isolationism and populism, and concerns related to pastoral ministry in the area. And this last point has garnered the most attention, especially because Pope Francis has allowed for discussion of ordaining married men to the priesthood to be included in the agenda. While Pope Francis said on August 9th that this is not the primary focus of the Synod, that it is just one topic among others, it has galvanized the Pope's critics who are accusing the Synod of overstepping on matters of discipline and doctrine before it's even begun. Meanwhile, in Germany, the bishops have been in conversation with an organization of the laity called the Central Committee of German Catholics to plan some kind of synodal procedure for addressing pressing issues in the country, such as the clergy abuse crisis, the declining number of self-identified Catholics, and the role of women in the church, among other topics. The planning for this event has drawn criticism and concern from some Vatican officials claiming it is, in effect, an unauthorized synod. What's going on here? How are these synod stories related, if at all, Dan? I mean, what, what are we to make of all this? 
Well, it's interesting. This morning I was looking um, at Twitter, which is never a good way to start the day, and I saw that there was a lot of a lot of Twitter energy around again the, the synodal discussion, both the um, the Synod of Bishops in Rome that's set to start, as you mentioned, in a couple of weeks in October on the Amazon region, but also some discussions that seem to be confused among people that they were conflating what's going on in Germany with what's going on in Rome with regard to the Amazon. So let's let's kind of disentangle this a little bit. First, you know, just like last year we had the Synod on Young People, right, the young adults, and in 2014 and 2015 we had the Synods on the family. And, you know, back in 2012, I think it was, we had the Synod on the New Evangelization. This is a Synod that's been planned for many years. Well, let, let's just stop for a moment and clarify what is a synod and what kind of power does it actually have? That's a great question. So a synod is an occasional gathering. It's a, it's generally a consultative body of bishops representing the globe. So the standing synods of bishops, there are two types, and this gets a little bit confusing, so stay with me, people. On the one hand, there are regular synods that meet on a, I want to say like on a every five-year basis. I can't remember off the top of my head, but on a regular basis, and those synods are composed of a couple hundred bishops from around the world. It's not an ecumenical council like Vatican II or Trent or, you know, Lateran IV. What it is is a a representative body of bishops from around the globe. And they come together to discuss over the course of several weeks some particular issue. It could be a pastoral issue. It could be a theme related to contemporary events. It could be something doctrinal. It's something that, that pertains to the life of the church. And that's set in advance, and there's a whole procedure for how one prepares for that. There's a a committee that's formed that's usually headed by a cardinal with experts that are consulted. They they draft a kind of initial agenda that gets revised. And a couple months, usually the summer before a synod, they typically take place in the fall, there is released what's called the Instrumentum Laboris, which is the working document. And it gives, it's sort of like an annotated table of contents for what's going to be discussed over the two or three weeks. So that's the typical format of synods in general. There are also these occasional synods that that are focused on different regions of the world. So there is a, a synod on kind of the, the Pacific context, Asian Pacific context. There's a synod on, one might say, Western Europe or something like this. This is a synod on what they're calling the Pan-Amazonian region. So all of these countries of South America and the, their, their respective bishops' conferences around the Amazon forest that is the geographic region. And so bishops from that region of the world are gathering in Rome in particular. And so when they gather and when they make decisions or pronouncements, are these uh, just suggestions or are they binding on the faithful in that region? Are they binding on the faithful globally or do we know? We do know, but it gets complicated. So so conferences of bishops in in a particular nation or language group and synod of synods of bishops are a consultative body that collectively exercise a form of what's called ordinary magisterium. But ordinary magisterium, with the exception of that exercise by the Bishop of Rome, as Bishop of Rome, ordinary magisterium, which is not taught with the charism of infallibility, so this is not infallible teaching, that's only been invoked very, very rarely in history, by the way. I've noticed some people on the internet saying, well, synods aren't infallible and bishops aren't infallible, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, yeah, but we none of us have been alive with a pope who exercised the charism of infallibility. That last time that happened was in 1950, so get over it. Okay. Typically it's uh, it gets complicated. So when it comes to a collection of bishops, they can elect as it were to embrace the teaching in their respective dioceses. So that varies from local church to local church, by which I mean diocese by diocese. That's why the Pope very often after a synod of bishops releases what's called an apostolic, a post-synodal apostolic exhortation. And that, because of his unique office as Bishop of Rome and Pope, he has universal teaching authority to exercise ordinary magisterium in the whole world. And so if he were to teach something to kind of summarize the documents or the, the perspectives, the conclusions of a synod, He can teach it in such a way by exercising his universal teaching authority that it's applicable in every diocese. So that's how the teaching gets exercised. 
What level of teaching that is is another question. Well, you let me get into the weeds on that, and thank you. And now let's get into the rainforest. And so what is at stake in this synod on the Pan-Amazonian region? So the Pan-Amazonian region, there are, there are a number of things. As I mentioned, it's it's a geographically defined subject matter. So the questions, the concerns, the the topics that are going to be addressed arise organically from the grassroots or from the jungle roots, as it were, of the Amazon, if we're going to keep <laughs> using these kind of puns and such. But they're really the concerns that f- are those of the people and the leaders of the church in this region of the world. So some of the most pressing issues, obviously, number one is climate change. The burning of the Amazon forest, the extinction of numbers of species, the increased, particularly in western Brazil, the increased deforestation and industrialization of the Amazon. You also have the issue of people leaving the church, people leaving Catholic Christianity to join Pentecostal communities. Um, And that's also of a part with the lack of available ministers, ordained ministers, particularly for people who are spread out in broad geographic regions. You know, there was one report that I saw that on average in these various countries, if you look at them kind of in the aggregate, there's one priest for every 16,000 people, and those people are spread out far and wide. Just to bring back to something we talked about last episode, when Pope Francis named the different bishops, remember there were only something like 23,000 Catholics in the diocese in Morocco of one of the, the new bishops named a cardinal. So, you know, it would be basically two priests for that entire diocese is the equivalent in this region of the world. Well, and what we're seeing then is that one of the responses to this geographic spread of the faithful that need clerics, that need pastoral support, is to give an option to have some kind of married clergy. Now, this is not unheard of in the Catholic Church, right? No. I mean, this is the thing that drives me crazy, is that people get so worked up about this. And there are a couple things. One, as Pope Francis clarified on August 9th of this year, this is not the primary purpose of the Synod. There are other in fact, we could say more kind of dire and pressing issues like the burning of the Amazon forest that cannot be replaced. So like, let's let's keep perspective here. But one of the things that Pope Francis points out is we need to look at real possibilities of responding to the pastoral needs of the people of God. And one of the things, and it's not from on high, so one of the weird kind of conspiracy theory things I saw tweeted about uh, with with some regularity, believe it or not, is that the agenda for the Synod of Bishops is actually the agenda proposed by, quote-unquote, liberal heretic German bishops. That makes no sense. But that ties it into what we were saying at the top, which is seeing a similarity between a kind of European change in Catholic culture that the bishops there are trying to address versus a real on-the-ground crisis that the bishops are trying to address, but because there's some overlap in some similar conversations, the sense is somehow this is a coordinated effort. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, there is definitely a conflation that's going on. But what we need to keep in mind is that the agenda that is driving the synod on the pan-Amazonian region comes from the people and the bishops of that region, period. And so let's switch then and talk about what's going on in Germany. So what... What's well, if, I, if, I, if I can, oh, yeah. about, about the married clergy thing, because this is such a hot-button issue, yes. even though it's one of many, many important topics. A- another one, too, is the... Just to talk about this, you asked, yeah, there are, ma- there are married clergy in the Roman Church right now. And part of that is because the 22 Eastern Catholic churches in full communion with Rome, they are fully in communion with the Roman Church as much as the Latin Church. They, by and large, do not preclude, they do not require a celibate clergy as a rule. They require a celibate episcopacy, but not a celibate clergy. That's right. And, and that goes back to a very ancient tradition in which, more often than not, particularly for, for the first millennium, first millennium and half of, of, the, of the Christian Church, that bishops were chosen from among religious orders. So you had monastic communities and so forth. And then, well, yeah, so that's that's a historical thing to note. And so that in the Eastern churches tends to be the case. Yeah, the bishops are, as a rule, unmarried, but you can have, and they do have married presbyters, married ministerial priests. You've also got the extraordinarily the extraordinary welcome that Benedict gave to the Anglican churches. And so when, when a married Anglican priest or a married Episcopal priest comes in, they're still considered to be a priest in good standing. That's true. And we have many cases, again, that are that bishops refer to based on pastoral necessity and the experience of ministers of other 
mainline Christian communities coming into full communion with Rome. So it's also not uncommon that bishops will recognize the ministry of, let's say, a Lutheran pastor who comes into full communion with Rome and may ordain them to the ministerial priesthood in the Catholic Church, regardless of if they're married and have children and this sort of thing. So it, it is, it's, it's rarer in the Latin Church, the Western Roman Church, but it does happen. The examples you brought up are really good. The Eastern churches in communion with Rome, they're fully Catholic churches. It's, it's standard. I think of like the Syro-Malabar rite in India, for instance, or the Melkite rite we might think of, and there, there are other examples. And so when we turn our, our gaze to Germany, what are we seeing there and what is driving that conversation? So the Germans are trying to respond to a lot of the same things we in the U.S. are responding to. You know, how to address and make sense of and heal and move forward with regard to the clergy sexual abuse and its cover-up. They're trying to address the, the shifts demographically and generationally about affective religiosity, people who are leaving the church, people who are skeptical, as Generation Z seems to be, of inauthenticity. And we saw that echoed very clearly in the Synod on Young People last year as the young people spoke. And they're addressing concerns that people have across Germany and I would say across the world about clarification about what is the role of women in the church? Do, can they have greater voice? And the bishops have been very clear that they're not talking about women's ordination as such, but they're talking about it, the topic more broadly. You know, how, how do we talk about equity in some way? Now, some people might claim, you know, well, you can't until all areas of ministry and so forth are, you know, open to everybody, but that's just not part of their agenda at present. And so what they're doing is they're engaging both at the hierarchical level in terms of the bishops, the cardinals of Germany, with organizations of laity to try to come together for some kind of structured process of conversation, of reflection, of constructive articulation, you know, coming forth with a document, maybe some policies, some proposals. And the language they're using that has drawn the ire of some people is they want to outline together a synodal process. And the claim from some people who don't like this idea, probably because the German bishops are very committed to empowering the laity by virtue of their baptism, they're as much a part of the church as the bishops themselves are, to have a leadership role in this process. And I think that upsets some people who would prefer to have a top-down approach, a very kind of paternalistic hierarchical approach. And the claim is, well, you are not following the texts and procedures for a diocesan synod as defined by canon law. And the bishops are responding back, you know, vocally through uh, Cardinal Marx, who is the president of the German Bishops Conference. He's made clear, he's like, no, no, we're not calling this a synod. This isn't the typical thing. We are seeking a synodal process. The word synod itself means to walk together. It's, it's how do we accompany one another? How do we dialogue in a fruitful, constructive, honest way? And so we want to work on laying out our own rules for what that synodal process is. And I was reminded by a colleague of mine that Australia is going through a nationwide plenary process right now. They're not using the term synod either. They're talking about a plenary, we might call it a council or something of that effect, of, of the churches in Australia, something that all the dioceses of Australia are participating in nationwide, uh, dealing with a lot of the same sort of subjects. And in their documents, they refer to that process again of synodality, of a synodal process. So there is precedent. There's stuff going on around the world like that right now. The Bishop of San Diego a couple years back, Bishop Bob McElroy, convened a diocesan synod and followed the structures that the, you know, the Roman authorities were talking about. And so there is precedent at the local level like that and also on the national level like we see in Australia. But I think some people are just uncomfortable with the fact that laity and bishops and clergy as well as theological advisors, theologians, are all going to be talking about things in a very open, dialogical way, and that frightens people. So as outside observers, we're not part of the conversations happening about the pan-Amazonian region, and we're not living in Germany. What should we be in prayer for with regard to these two processes? I think it's always, in terms of a, a prayer intention, I think it's always good to pray for an openness to the work of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the one who drives the church, drives the development of doctrine, drives the application of pastoral ministry and so forth. And so I, I really applaud what the German bishops are doing. I think 
I think it's important. I, again, there are times where I just scratch my head about the U.S. because with exceptions like Bishop McElroy and, and a few others, um, most of the bishops of the U.S. are very reluctant to have that kind of open dialogue, partly because you, you surrender a certain amount of control. And we saw that with the true embrace of the synodal process by Pope Francis over these last six years, as opposed to the way that John Paul II kind of reoriented the synodal process in Rome, which was that the instrumentum laboris that would come out in the summer was effectively the first draft and only draft of what would become the final document of the synod and therefore inform his apostolic exhortation. That in other words, the agenda was already set. It was kind of a pro forma gathering and, and everybody knew what the conclusion was going to be. And Pope Francis actually trusts in the Holy Spirit. Surprise, surprise. And, and like Paul VI, who established the regular synodal process in Rome, kind of re-established it, we should say, from its ancient tradition. Paul VI, I think, and, and Pope Francis both recognize that the Spirit works and is alive and that she inspires the church moving forward and trusted that. People who want to advance their own agenda are very reluctant to follow that pattern. What I love is how just deeply Franciscan your answer to me was. And it's informed, I think, by the wisdom and the charism of both St. Francis and St. Clair. How so? Well, just in the sense of the, the, the notion of rebuilding a church that's not oh, just yeah, a physical yeah, yeah. church that demands that you be open to new things. It demands that you be open to the possibility that that there can be new mortar and new bricks, if you will. Yeah. And that, and that to me, is, is, I think, where Pope Francis, as you say, is trusting the Holy Spirit in this process. And we should, too. And so on that note, uh, let's take a break. I'm sure that we'll come back and talk about this again in future episodes because it's going to be an important moment for the church on both of these continents. But for now, you're listening to The Francis Effect, and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with David Dalt. And yeah, you know the drill. Earlier in September, on the plane trip back from his papal visit to Madagascar, Pope Francis was asked a question by the New York Times reporter Jason Horowitz. After mentioning that, quote, there is strong criticism from some bishops and cardinals. There are Catholic television stations and American websites that are very critical. And there are even some of your closest allies who have spoken of a plot against you, unquote. Horowitz then went on to ask the question that has been on everyone's mind. Are you afraid of a schism in the American church? Pope Francis responded with a lengthy answer. It was an answer that spoke very plainly, which is his practice, about current tensions within the church and tied them to earlier anti-Vatican II sentiments, including a specific mention of Marcel Lefebvre, the founder of the Society of St. Pius X, which rejected the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. They, they have, by the way, said that there is no legitimate pope after Pius XII. This is the heart of the response Pope Francis gave to Horowitz's question, are you afraid of schism? The Holy Father said, and I quote, a schism is always an elitist separation stemming from an ideology detached from doctrine. It is an ideology, perhaps correct, but that engages doctrine and detaches it. And so I pray that schisms do not happen, but I am not afraid of them, unquote. As can be expected, Catholic writers have been digging into the meat of the answer Pope Francis gave, including everybody's favorite, cranky, young conservative Ross Duthat. He wrote a column for the New York Times where he examined his own predictions that a schism was on the horizon, albeit a slow drive toward it. But David, what do you think? I'm so fascinated by what Duthat did in that column because he, he basically said, okay, I was right then— when I said that schism is on the horizon and I was waving the flag. But now that everyone else is saying schism, I'm saying, whoa, slow down. It may not be that quickly. So it was just, it was interesting to me to see how he was both claiming and hedging the correctness of his position. That's pretty standard for him, I think. Yeah. But what I, what I really loved, though, from Pope Francis's answer on the plane was how he didn't duck the question, he didn't equivocate. He basically said, yes, schisms have happened, and schisms are always on the table, and we have to deal with that as a reality. 
that is not a bargaining chip. That's what I, I'm paraphrasing, but basically that's not a bargaining chip for us to then back down from the things that need to be talked about and addressed. Yeah. I mean, it's important to realize too, and, and the thing that kind of I think is missing from some of the conversation, including Duthat's column and, and his earlier column about schism, is that schism is not, it, it, schism is, is self-appointed. Schism is self-determined. What do you mean by that? One breaks with communion with Rome, and to do that, one breaks communion with the bishop of Rome, who is the symbol of unity and koinonia in Greek, right? This, this fellowship, this communion that binds us together in the spirit. So schism is not something that Pope Francis does. Schism is not something that those who are in orthodox and right relationship with the church do. It's a self-selecting, self-determining process where, where people say, we're out. So to me, there's an irony, and I think this is one of the things I read in Pope Francis's use of the term ideology, where he's like, it's ideology detached from doctrine. It's, it's people's own agendas that drive them to think themselves above and beyond what is basic doctrine, one of which is to be authentically Christian, Catholic Christian in this context, is to be in communion with Rome. And so the ones who are like saying, well, this pope is out of line and these sorts of things, their solution to that is actually to break communion. They're not the true church by definition. They're schismatics. Well, and this, this speaks to um, a, an observation that G.K. Chesterton made. A similar spirit animated both Chesterton and the pope's analysis of this. And that is you take one doctrine and you make that the kind of central piece of your idea of what being Christian is. And you overemphasize that against all of the, all others. And so in Chesterton's example, the sovereignty of God becomes overemphasized in the Reformed tradition at the expense of other doctrines. Or in the Quaker tradition, the notion of God's continuing revelation becomes overemphasized against others. And then it, it, that single doctrine that is lifted up and prized distorts the, the orbits of all the other doctrines. And that's you know, what, what we're saying here is the, the visible communion with the Bishop of Rome is the marker of Catholicism. That's right. And I've said this in, in various ways that in other episodes of this program. When you imagine a church that you think is better and superior to the visible church that exists today, as messy as it is, you have just talked yourself into Protestantism. Or you've talked yourself into, as to use your words and, 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 and to some extent, Pope Francis's words, you've talked yourself into schism. And so what, what are we then to make of those who say, but there's teaching and the teaching can't be changed, and somehow we're, we're in the midst of a pope that wants to mess with the teaching, or we're in the midst of a, of, a, of a moment when the church itself and its official organs are moving away from Catholic teaching? How do we address that? Well, first of all, I would say you're spot on with identifying this kind of ideology, this, this theological ideolo- ideology or ideological approach to theology of, of nitpicking preferred teachings or perspectives or disciplines of the church. I mean, I think a couple things. First, when people say that, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. I mean, I don't mean to, I'm going to come across as elitist and I'm sorry, but, you know, I, my day job, my life is given to profound and deep study of theology in the Catholic tradition. And for a living teach about the hierarchy of truths, the levels of church teaching, magisterium, and tradition. This is something I know well, and it's, you can talk to my students, you can talk to graduates, you can talk to people who have graduate degrees in theology. It takes a long time, and it's very complicated to dissect these things. So when people throw around things like teaching never changes, or there's some things that are more important than others, that's not untrue, but it's also not the whole picture. When people start talking about infallibility and non-infallibility, as soon as somebody says infallibility— I know they don't know what they're talking about. I, I just know that. It's, it's, a, it's kind of like when, when people start calling one another Nazis, it's the end of a discussion, right? You lose the debate. You start throwing around infallibility. I'm 100% sure you don't know what you're talking about. So what I hear you saying is that someone invoking infallibility is a marker of fallibility. <laughs> In a literal sense. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Everybody is fallible. I mean, that's the other thing too. So let me just put it this way. Even those core elements of our Christian theology, those doctrinal centerpieces that we hold at the very center of our kind of hierarchy of truths that we label dogmatic, those things themselves, for instance, the full divinity of Jesus Christ, the triunity of God, 
the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Those things are doctrines that have, quote unquote, developed and changed to get to the point of articulation that they are dogmatic. Before the Council of Nicaea in 325, there was very hot debate about what does it mean to claim that Jesus is divine. And so I'm getting a little worked up, as you can tell, because this is something I care about. So I have very little patience, and I, I really admire Pope Francis's own patience, and it shows his holiness and his pastoral sort of sensibility to not kind of lash out like I do about these things. Because even well-intentioned people and some not well-intentioned people, I'm talking about lay people, I'm talking about people on the internet, I'm talking about certain bishops who are floating these kind of schismatic ideas around in this sort of language they don't generally know what they're talking about. So what I'll say is this, that if people want to, they're, they're really exercising, as you kind of described it earlier, and I'll just characterize it this way, kind of cafeteria approaches to theological principles. If you want to say that denial of communion to married, divorced and remarried Catholics without an annulment is more important to you than communion with the Bishop of Rome, then you're schismatic. You miss the point. So have fun in your own little church. So when we look at what Pope Francis does on the plane, he's not ducking or doing doublespeak, even though it's in translation and, and, it's, and he is a very complex thinker. What we see is what I took to be a very direct answer. And the crisis is something that Duthat actually talked about in his column, and that is, you know, most of what we see as the kind of visible calls for breaking or the visible calls for rebelling against this particular pontificate come from the Twitterverse. They come from social media. And the question is raised, how seriously should we take that kind of static on the internet? But we also, and you just talked about this, we also see bishops who are making claims about this and who are speaking out publicly in opposition to Rome. So I guess I want to ask you a two-tiered question. What are we to make, or are we right to dismiss the kind of Twitter static, but what are we to make as well of when bishops engage in a similar kind of rhetoric? should be concerned. I, I think we should be concerned. That was the Lefebvre issue kind of is, is the, the clearest, biggest sort of example in, in the recent half century. There's a canonical process and, you know, though that's primarily juridical, it's theologically grounded for how to address such cases if they become egregious enough. That You're right about the Twitterverse. That complicates things a bit because people can be flip. They can be quick. They could be extroverting their ideas and frustrations and it may or may not be serious. Uh, I encourage some of our listeners, if, if you're interested in seeing how the juridical process of this is a rather colloquial phrasing, but reigning in kind of rogue bishops are. I encourage you to Google what happened, I believe it was around 2011 with 2011 or 2012, the Bishop of Scranton, Pennsylvania, who refused to accept, and we were talking about ordinary magisterium earlier in our conversation, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops points out, as I've mentioned before, the uh, document every four years about Catholic voting, you know, forming, you know, faithful citizens. And he wanted to make very clear who one could and could not vote for very, very explicitly and refused to accept that document and, and very much was going against his brother bishops in the U.S. and in many ways going against that. At that time, it was Pope Benedict XVI who was Bishop of Rome. And the process was the Metropolitan Basically, you know, there is a canonical process for removing somebody from their office. And in effect, to make a long story short, that's what happened. And the Archbishop of Philadelphia, who's the Metropolitan Archbishop that oversees that diocese for purposes such as these, appointed administrator and so forth. But it's incredibly rare that that happens. But there are processes, and I, I think of that as an illustration of in an extreme circumstance. You know, there are some of these bishops on Twitter I'm thinking of that one in Texas, and there's one in Illinois in particular, who are very, very hostile, not just to Pope Francis personally, but within the political sphere of the U.S. context as well, and oftentimes do not align with what actual church teaching is. So I think it's important to state that the reason why the bishops of the world and, and the Pope, when there is an ecumenical council, and this goes back for hundreds and hundreds of years, bring what are called pariti or individual peritus in Latin, theological advisors, professional theologians like you and me, David, to Rome to advise the bishops is that most bishops are not actually theologians. 
they, in most cases, have no more training in the area of theology or pastoral counseling or ministry than they did when they were in seminary as priests. They may be very bright in these sorts of things, and they are the primary teachers and the symbols of communion in a local church, but that does not mean that they, by virtue of their ordination to the episcopacy, have some sort of magical power to know all things theological. And that's displayed kind of in a public way in the social media age when we see some bishops who really, again, this might refrain in this segment of our podcast today, is they don't know what they're talking about. And that can lead, it, it leads to confusion because they are morally, they are juridically responsible for the pastoral care of the people in their diocese. And it's right for people to look to them to see what they're stating and how they're viewing things and what their comments are. And if they're the ones throwing this stuff around that smells of, of schism, that smells of, re, of moving outside of communion with Rome or rejecting church teaching as they seem to, that's a serious problem. Well, and you, you mentioned theology and you mentioned doctrine. Another piece that we need to bring into this that I don't think Catholics consider often enough is in addition to church teaching and church doctrine, we also have a very complex code of canon law. And if you, if you want to look it up, what you're looking for is Part 2, Section 2, Title 1, Chapter 2 of the Code of Canon Law that Pope John Paul II helps to kind of bring up to, to modern speed. But that deals specifically with the powers of bishops and what bishops can and can't do and, and what the kind of limitations are and what the, and what the responsibilities, what the responsibilities are. Yeah. are of bishops. When you start to dig into a document like that or start to look at a section like that, which you come away from, appreciating is how complex the power, the dynamics, and the interplay is, even around someone who apparently has a lot of power, like a bishop. There's not a fiat for a bishop to be able to do anything that a bishop wants in their diocese. But there, And as you said, there's also an appropriate level of expectation that a bishop will do some minimal things within a diocese and in relationship to Rome. And the thing that's really troubling, though, about this talk of schism other than introducing, you know, a, a new catchphrase, everybody's using the S word, is that the very definition of a church is to be centered around the symbolic leadership, right? It's centered around a local ordinary, around a bishop. And that bishop symbolizes the local church's communion with the universal church, which is why in the Eucharistic prayer, for instance, every time we gather for mass, we pray for the bishop of Rome and we pray for the local bishop. That is a verbal confirmation that we in that assembly of worship are in communion with the local bishop and we recognize that he is in communion with the bishop of Rome and therefore the bishops of the world. So it gets really dangerous when bishops abdicate or, you know, their, their responsibility to be in communion with Rome. There's nothing more serious than that because everything else that follows, if they are outside of communion, so we talk about people who put themselves outside of communion, and if that's declared officially by the church, that's called excommunication. So Lefebvre, for instance, was a schismatic archbishop who, re, who moved outside of communion with Rome to create what he considered to be an authentic church. That makes it a schismatic movement. But in effect, what had to happen then was there was a recognition by, I think it was Paul VI, and then certainly John Paul II maintained this, recognizing that he and his followers had moved outside of communion with Rome. That's what excommunication means. It's not something one does to another. It's something one does to oneself, and it's affirmed or acknowledged by the church. That is essentially what some of these bishops are flirting with and what other people who are calling for this sort of pure, more ideologically pure or, or you know, quote-unquote correct doctrinally, whatever, pastorally or something church are doing is that they are flirting with moving outside of communion with Rome. And therefore, if they want to move people with them, they can form their own schismatic community, but they are in effect excommunicating themselves. They're moving outside of communion. I'm going to speak from my own experience of recovery and my own experience of the self-righteousness that kind of demands recovery. There is such uh, an addictive power. It's almost like a rush to feel like you're the only one in a room who's right and that everyone around you is wrong. So I understand the impetus that drives some of this desire to sort of throw your hands up and scream, has everyone gone to hell in a handbasket? I get that. Uh, I've been there. I'm not a, a fun guy to be around when I'm in that state of mind. And the people in the church who insist on being right all the time, 
are not are not uh, are not fun to be around. And it's not fun is not the is not the litmus test here, but. But the, it distorts your view, yeah, too. Is that dis- what I hear yeah, you saying? Exactly. And, and the fact that the church, the, the fundamental aspect of the church is that it has to be universal. The fundamental aspect of the church is that it is global and that it, 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 has, to be, it has to be there and visible to everybody. And that when you start making your own small sub-community and say, we're the only ones out of billions of people who have the truth, you're missing the point and the hope of the gospel. The gospel is... You know, yes, we talk about the narrow gate, but we also talk about the widespread of Christ's arms on the cross. That that what we're looking for is a God who is not looking to exclude people, but is willing to go to the cross to include people, even the thief next to him. So we can find in our own core stories reasons to have this broad hope and reasons to not turn our back on our brothers and sisters who we think maybe, you know, dress a funny way or or say things the wrong way. It, we're, we're, we shouldn't be about exclusion. We should be about hospitality, I guess, is where I'm coming down. And I think, I think Pope Francis is of that spirit. He's trying to find ways to be hospitable within the churches that are literally in schism right now. So if we think about the Eastern churches and the gestures he's made towards that, he's made gestures towards— You're talking about the Orthodox churches. I'm talking about the, the Orthodox churches, but also towards Pentecostals, towards other— and, and so, so there is a hospitality at the heart of Francis's pontificate that I think is a good model for all of us. I think that's right. It's also important, and maybe this is a good place for us to wrap up our conversation, for everybody to remember that the church is not its leaders. The church is not a particular individual even. The church is the whole people of God, all the baptized. The church is the body of Christ. And so the language that's being used sometimes by those who are critical in this way, that are flirting with schism, if we want to put it that way, is that they're repl- there's, an, there's a kind of idolatry that they're embracing. They're making themselves or their ideology or their agenda, or a particular individual or group of individuals, the church. And that is, it flies in the face of what it is we actually believe. So, yeah, we need to continue praying like we do for the synods, praying for the, you know, the openness to the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Spirit is at work. Do we listen? Are our hearts open to it? Or do we find ourselves, like you were saying, David, frustrated, anger, angry, and self-righteous, saying that we know best? So uh, it's better, I think it's always best, to let the Holy Spirit lead the church. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any of the institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they are wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at Salt and light tv.org we're supported by listeners like you if you want to join us in this bold adventure you can go to patreon.com slash francis fx pod not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done but you can also unlock bonus content from our episodes again that's patreon.com slash francis fx pod we appreciate it very much you can follow us on twitter and facebook at francis fx pod that's francis the letters f and x and the word pod Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have four seasons of episodes for you to go back and listen to. And please do so and tell us what you think. Thanks for listening.